through to verse 36. Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption." This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Well, let us pray for God's blessing to be upon his word. Our Father, we thank you for your word. What glorious words we've read. What glorious words we've sung. We pray now as your word is preached, we will hear more glory upon more glory and that we will rejoice for Christ has been raised from the dead. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I wonder if any of you spent some time uh, visiting with and discussing uh, theology with any Sadducees this past week. Uh, now, I, I don't want to ask you that because someone will misunderstand the word Sadducee and say, oh yes, I had a conversation and derail the whole introduction to my sermon. So did anybody have an in-depth conversation with a Sadducee this week? Uh, the reason I ask that is because uh, the Sadducees, as you may well know, were a first century group of Jewish religious leaders. They were part of the elite ruling class along with the Pharisees, who were the sort of um, different theologically minded, but still religious leaders of the day, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Sadducees were somewhat famous for uh, only believing in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, as well as denying the bodily resurrection. Now, as those who deny the bodily resurrection, you might not be surprised to find there are not millions upon millions of Sadducees floating around society seeking to evangelize people to the glorious hope that they hold to. 
for there is no bodily resurrection as far as they are concerned. Paul makes good use of this debate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees to get himself out of trouble in Acts, but the point was they denied the bodily resurrection. Now, in the 20th century, with the encroachment of German liberalism from the universities and making its way over very quickly to America, the liberals also denied a bodily resurrection. Their idea of resurrection was somewhat different. It is the idea that uh, if you believe that Jesus was a good man and sought to do good to people, which we have read of already here in Acts chapter 2, he went around doing good, performing many signs and wonders. If you believe that Jesus was a good person seeking to do good to people, you can experience your own resurrection in your heart because that is the essence of the gospel now it is that we have a heart resurrection no bodily resurrection but a heart one where we are transformed to do good and kindness towards others you can see then why liberal churches by and large are dying failing and are utterly no use to people who are concerned about the real painful realities of this life, which include death. However, there's another class of people. They are going around churches today, and it's nice to see so many Easter Christians here today. That would be all of you, by the way. You thought I was just talking about those people who show up on Easter. No, we're all Easter Christians, but I digress. These Easter Christians who show up and they say to the person, He is risen. And then they say, He is risen indeed. And uh, that is good. Now, I'll be honest. If one person next week could say that to me, I'll be tickled pink as a Presbyterian. Because every Lord's Day is Resurrection Day. So, just one person. I'm not asking a whole lot. Is it too much to ask for one of you to say, uh, Pastor Mark, he is risen. And I'll say, yes, he's risen indeed. Um, We'll see if that happens. I have my doubts. But there are these people who believe in the bodily resurrection. The question for us today is a very simple one. Which is worse The liberal or the Sadducee who denies the bodily resurrection of Christ, but maybe in the case of the liberal, still by some kind act of God's mercy, still seeks to do good to people. Which is worse, that person or the conservative who believes that Christ has been raised, but it doesn't actually make much difference in their day-to-day living? It doesn't transform their outlook on life. It doesn't revolutionize the way they approach each day, each week, each month. It hasn't, shall we say, utterly transformed their outlook on who they are, who God is, and where they are going. Which is worse? And I'm not sure I have an answer to that question. But it is a question for you to consider. Now, to get to this point in seeking to answer that question, I want you to consider how one act, and the issue here in verse 24 is upon the act of the Father raising Jesus from the dead. But before we get there, how one act can have such far-reaching consequences. And I will state this negatively and positively. 
Negatively speaking, James tells us this. In James chapter 3, verse 5, he speaks about the tongue, this restless evil. And he likens the tongue to a spark, a spark that can set ablaze an entire forest. And we see that, how a little fire left unchecked, not properly put out, can cause devastation among thousands upon thousands of trees and peoples and all sorts of things. One little act with far-reaching consequences. This past week on Fraser Highway by my house, uh, as we were driving, uh, traffic had stopped on one side, blocked off, because two uh, men on motorbikes had gone up, and uh, one lost his life on the motorbike, driving up Fraser Highway. And I went for a run uh, down that way, and there was already a photo of the gentleman with candles and flowers around the tree where he had lost his life. And I stopped to have a look at the photo, and there he was, sitting down. It looked like at a restaurant. Maybe he was enjoying a meal, maybe enjoying a beer, maybe smiling. And at some point in his life, he woke up one morning, and he thought he'd go for a ride on his motorbike. And who knows what happened as he was going up the hill, not down the hill, And a second later, whatever accident took place, whether caused by himself or something else, his life is over. One act with far-reaching consequences. We've had this happen perhaps with food. My best friend in high school, I'll never forget, he went to SFU and lost a whole year of university because on one ill-fated day he went to Subway, I imagine to eat a sub, Uh, he must have eaten something that was bad. And that one bite, so to speak, led to him being bedridden for a year. One bite! And a year lost. One act. Devastating consequences. There are people who, if we were to extrapolate this further, there would be thousands upon thousands of examples. A young person with an act of sexual infidelity and it leads to maybe a horrible disease or it leads to a pregnancy where all of a sudden one act leads to far-reaching consequences. We know this is true in nature and in observation, but we also know this is theologically true. Now it's important that you stay with me. I had people crying earlier. And the sad part about it wasn't that they were in tears. At least they recognized the reality of this. The sad part is that you have to stay to the end of the sermon. Because I'm stating things negatively right now. The Bible does that. The Bible states the negative consequences of sin. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul will say, Therefore, as one trespass... Not billions of trespasses. One trespass led to what? Condemnation for one man? No. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. You and me were caught up in Adam's one trespass. That one act of madness led to condemnation, led to death, led to guilt, led to shame, led to suffering for all men. Men. This is a fact of Scripture. But there's also something upon closer analysis that it isn't merely 
and very often isn't merely one accident that leads to devastating consequences. That can happen, but very often not doing God's will leads to not doing God's will. And very often as the not doing God's will keeps on multiplying, it then flourishes into something whereby you think, wow, that one act has had such devastating consequences, but you forgot that there were a whole host of acts that led to that. So in the case of David, if you actually read 2 Samuel 11 carefully and slowly, you will see that the author is slowly unfolding what led to that one act of madness by David. And it was an act of madness, but it wasn't something whereby David was just walking along one day the street and sees a beautiful woman and takes her to himself. There were a host of sins as it were, that took place that led to this problem. In fact, maybe you should have a look in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And 2 Samuel, as you will find out after this chapter, a lot of the uh, mayhem that takes place in the rest of 2 Samuel is a result of what is happening here with his family, with others. Now in the spring of that year, it's the time when the kings go to battle. Who is David? He is a king. Where then should he be? In battle. But David actually sends Joab. There's the first problem. He sends Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. He remains at home. And they ravage the Ammonites and besiege Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. You need to see that Not doing God's will leads to not doing God's will. Leads to not doing God's will. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. He should never have been there. But he was on the couch. And he's walking on the roof of the king's house. And he sees from the roof a woman bathing. And she is very beautiful. And... She is another man's wife. And that man pays with his life. And David suffers many, many consequences for that act of madness. But don't think that the sin took place when he called for Bathsheba. He wasn't doing God's will. It led to not doing God's will. One more example. Judas didn't just have a rough day when everything was sort of spiraling out of control and the authorities were after Jesus and he thought, you know what? I don't know. I'm, I, I don't have a lot of money. It looks like Jesus isn't the promised Messiah. What am I going to do? They offer him 30 pieces of silver. This will help me to get through the next few months because, you know, Jesus is going to get killed by these guys. I've got to look after my family. You could see people justifying it. But John doesn't let us come to that conclusion regarding Judas, that he just had one moment of madness. No, when Judas saw that Mary had poured out the perfume upon Jesus' feet, he rebuked her, saying this money could have been used for the poor. And John then adds in an interpretive comment, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because having charge of the money bag, he would steal from that. 
Judas was not doing God's will early on in his ministry, which led to him not doing God's will, which led to him hanging himself, which led to him falling down from hanging himself and having his guts splattered all over the earth. So we can look at one act of madness and say, wow, it seems unfortunate that so much bad should come from it. But we also have to remember a lot of times there are a lot of little or big sins that lead up to us finally getting caught. Next time you get a speeding ticket, this is what I would like you to say. As you protest and you say, Officer, I heard a sermon by my pastor and he wanted me to say these words to you. I not only deserve this ticket for all the times that I have sped uh, or for the time I've sped today, but I have actually sped in the past and it's finally caught up with me. Because not doing God's will leads to not doing God's will. So I deserve this ticket. You might get out of it, actually. Pure shock comes over the officer. Crazy Christian, I'm out of here. (laughs) And you can thank me and give me the money. (laughs) But isn't that the problem? Something happens to us, and we protest that event, but we forget how many times we've been guilty before that. That you may get caught for speeding 10 kilometers over and everybody does it. The point is, the consequences for sin are usually the result of a pattern and God finally teaches us a lesson. Now what does that have to do with the text? Well, remember that there is a positive side as well. The positive side is that doing God's will leads to doing God's will. Joseph was loved by God and loved by his father, and he is a type of Christ insofar as he was dead, as far as Jacob was concerned, when he sees the coat and says, without doubt my son has been torn to pieces. And then he emerges and is able to save Israel by feeding them and keeping them from dying of starvation. And he appears to his brothers, just like Christ appeared to his brothers. But you see, Joseph, by doing God's will, was able to do God's will. And he was able to save. And so the flip side of the negative pattern is actually remedied only in the gospel by Jesus Christ. And so you see in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, that God raised him, that is Jesus, up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible. It was impossible for Jesus to be held by death. One act, God raising Jesus from the dead, ushers in a new humanity, a cosmic hope, for the entire universe, that all things will be made new and well simply by God raising Jesus from the dead. Now something so far-reaching wasn't simply because God raised someone from the dead. Jesus 
had raised Lazarus from the dead, but it was not as far-reaching in its consequences as God raising Jesus from the dead. Now, there's something quite interesting about Acts. The emphasis in in the epistles is upon the Father raising Jesus from the dead. We are told in the Gospel accounts that Jesus will say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The emphasis is upon what He will do. Or John 10 Nobody takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. And when Jesus is speaking there, he's speaking about the fact that he is also truly God. And so according to the divine power that he possesses, he can raise his life from the dead. But the emphasis in Acts is upon the Father doing something to Jesus. And it's very important you understand this. If you want to understand the external works of the Trinity are undivided, you go read Augustine and you'll be fine on that. But... Right now, you have to understand there is an important reason why the emphasis in Acts is upon the Father raising Jesus from the dead. And that is because He had to raise Jesus from the dead. It was impossible for God not to raise Jesus from the dead. Why is that? Well, Peter actually helps us understand why God had no other choice but to say to his son, you will be alive. I will raise you from the dead and it will be my thundering amen to all of creation of who you are because of what you did. Why did God the Father raise Jesus from the dead? He raised him from the dead because as David tells us in Peter's sermon, it was not possible for the Holy One to see decay. Jesus had been so faithful, so obedient, so loving to the Father so that He could say, I only do the things that please the Father. I only speak the words the Father has given to me. He had been so utterly perfect in His obedience from His very first breath where He cried to God from His mother's womb to His last breath where He cried to God on the cross that it would have been impossible for the Father not to vindicate such a holy person. To let someone so holy, so obedient remain in the grave would have made God into a monster. But God is not a monster. God is faithful and God is just. And God could not wait to see His Holy One vindicated. It is almost as if everything else in all of world history is insignificant compared to the delight that God had in raising His Son from the dead. Because if that did not happen, then everything else in all of world history is insignificant. And you know what's very interesting to me? I went to a secular university, did the religious studies program, somewhat naively thinking I would walk in and there would all be these Calvinists and we'd be discussing great theology and I found out very quickly that was not the case. And I had a dear professor, Dr. Grant, and he was by no means a conservative, I can assure you. But I remember him in class and it almost strikes me as a little bit courageous in such a secular university where he had a class and he says, there's one thing that really I cannot get over and that's why 
He was not a liberal who said, well, a resurrection is something that happens internally where your spirit feels alive to serve God. He said, I cannot understand the change in the apostles. I cannot understand the change in Peter. It makes no sense that a Jewish person would see their Messiah crucified and then act the way they did after he has been killed, which was what? Boldness and courage and hope. It makes no sense. A crucified Messiah is a failed Messiah. Unless that Messiah is a resurrected Messiah. So when Peter's preaching here, he is emphasizing the boldness and the hope and the confidence the resurrection brings. And the emphasis is upon what the Father is doing. Is it not God who said, I will honor those who honor me? You can go to Samuel and you can read that. God honors those who honor Him. Jesus Christ honored the Father unlike anyone else has ever honored the Father. The Father was bound to that promise. He who honors me, I will honor Him. Jesus was faithful to me. I will be faithful to Him. God the Father would do nothing else in all of world history with more joy, as it were, than raising His Son from the dead. He was raised for our justification. And He was raised so that Christ might be vindicated, proved to be in the right for all that He said all of those years, all of the good that He did all of those years. As He comes out of the grave, it is the definitive proof that He is who He said He was and He will do what He said He will do. Now you see how disproportionate things can be? An act of madness leads to So much suffering. But on the other hand, look how disproportionate the Gospel is. You are asked to be able to sing, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to Thee for dress. Helpless look to Thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. You are asked to bring to God nothing. You are only asked to honor the Son by believing in Him. And when you honor the Son by believing in Him, that He has been raised from the dead. For if anyone believes in their heart that Jesus was raised from the dead, they will have eternal life. It is so disproportionate that it is the basic reason why people don't believe. They cannot believe that they would bring nothing to God except receiving Christ by faith alone and receiving not only Christ, but resurrection life, resurrection hope, a resurrection body one day. So I come back to my first question, which is worse? Which is worse, the liberal who wants to do good to people because they believe what really matters is experience a resurrection in one's heart, or the conservative who says, yes, Jesus was raised from the dead, but it does nothing to change the way they live. Does nothing to transform who they are as an individual. That you worry about everything, that you complain about everything, that you don't look forward 
to anything because you're so caught up in yourself that the resurrection hasn't transformed the way you think about life, the way you think about death, the way you think about eternity. Which is worse? You may as well be a liberal. Or you may as well, and this is merely my suggestion, believe that if Jesus has been raised from the dead, and He has, that everything about your life needs to change. Everything about your outlook to what really matters in this world has to change. Everything about your hopes and what really matters has to change. Everything about what you're going to look forward to in the future has to change. Everything about the confidence you place in man versus God has to change. Everything has to change because God has raised Jesus from the dead. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word and ask that we will believe what we have read. We will believe what we have heard. We will believe what we are about to sing. And if we cannot believe that, we are to be pitied above all people for coming so close, yet we are so far. Help us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.